Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn to John chapter 17 together. John chapter 17, our text this morning is the last verses, beginning verse 20 to the end of verse, uh, the end of the chapter, verse 26. So we've been working our way through this farewell prayer, sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We've seen how Jesus prayed for himself and how Jesus prayed for his disciples, the 11 who were standing around him, and by extension, his disciples after the 11. But here, in this passage before us, Jesus prays specifically for us, those who would believe through the apostles' word. Uh, and so this is, this is an important passage for us today to understand how it is that Jesus prays for us. Um, what is it that he asks for? We're going to discover this morning, but we're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to do so. so let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you uh, by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. And we ask that you would grant your Holy Spirit accompany the reading and preaching of the Word. And we do believe, triune God, that this Bible is in fact inspired, God-breathed. But Lord, we know also that the Holy Spirit must illuminate our eyes, the eyes of faith, so that we might actually see uh, and so believe. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do your peculiar work in our midst this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you also love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brian Chappell once told the story of a faithful Sunday school teacher that he had when he was in elementary school. This Sunday school teacher told his students that he was praying for them, that he prayed for them regularly, indeed daily. After Brian graduated from this man's Sunday school class, the man would stop him in the halls of the church and say, I just want to remind you, I'm praying for you. When Brian headed off to college to Northwestern University outside of Chicago, the man wrote him a note and just to remind him, as you head off to college, I'm, I'm praying for you. And when Brian decided to go to seminary at Covenant Seminary, he, he received a similar note. When he was called to his first pastorate 
uh, Brian received a note while he was there in Sparta, Illinois, from this man telling him uh, how proud he was of him, but also that he had been praying for him. And when he was called to come teach at Covenant Seminary, Brian received another note. Finally, Brian became president of Covenant Seminary, and this man sent him a longer note. And this man wrote to him and said, There has not been a day for the past 30 years that I have failed to pray for you. And as God gives me strength, I will continue to uphold you in prayer as you enter into your duties as president of the seminary. Can you imagine how encouraging that would be? To have someone who's known you all of your life, basically, from the time you were in their Sunday school class, all the way through high school and college and into your career, whatever it may be, for, for decades to know that daily they were praying for you, asking for God to grow you in grace and to increase your usefulness in ministry. <sighs> what an encouragement this must have been. Of course, it's pretty rare to find men and women who, who would pray for, for us for that long. But listen, the Bible's good news for you this morning is there is someone who has known you all of your life, who has prayed for you and is praying for you and will pray for you day by day, moment by moment, that you might grow in grace and in usefulness in ministry. Do you know who that person is? His name is Jesus. And this passage tells us here in the farewell prayer and in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, this passage in the Bible tells us, first of all, that Jesus does in fact pray for us. From before the foundation of the world, through our lives into the future, Jesus prays for us. And it also tells us what he prays for us. Wouldn't you like to know? Wouldn't you like to know what those prayer requests Jesus has for you are? He tells you right here. In fact, we find here in this passage in verses 20 to 26 at the end of this this farewell prayer that Jesus prays for you and he prays three things in particular he prays that you might know unity he prays that you will see his glory and he prays that you would have certainty so notice first this morning that as Jesus prays for you this one who ever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him as the writer to the Hebrew says When Jesus prays for you, he prays that you might know, as as followers of his, you might know unity. Jesus actually prays for that in the strongest terms possible. Did you see it? And in verse 21, he, he says that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in in me and, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then again in verse 23, I am them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. That they may be one, that they may be perfectly, completely one. What in the world does that mean? Well, Protestant writers are quick to point out that when Jesus prays for unity, he's, he's not necessarily talking about organizational unity. When we confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed and we say that we believe in one holy Catholic church, one holy universal church, we are not praying that we believe in one large, single, visible, organizational church entity to which all Christians belong or must belong. 
That's not what Jesus is talking about. Rather, what what we're confessing is what Jesus is praying for here. Namely, that all those through space and time who would come to believe in him through the apostolic witness, who would believe in the, the worthy apostles, the gospel that they proclaim, that they might know unity, that they might be one. And so since this this unity is not organizational, what is it? What what is this unity that we have with all those who have believed in Jesus Christ through space and time, from the very first believer uh, among the disciples to the very last? What is this unity that we experience? What, What anchors it? What is it based on? Well, it's based on the fact that we share a common faith, that there's one faith. I mean, how does Jesus describe it, these future disciples? He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. You see, these who, with whom we know unity are those who have believed in Jesus, as our as one of our membership vows puts it, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of sinners and that we have rested upon him and received him as he's been offered to us in the gospel. All those who have rested upon Jesus, who are relying upon him alone for salvation, who have received him as he's been offered to the gospel, we have a unity with them. We share a common faith. There's one faith one faith that we share in Jesus, that's, that's the basis of our unity, that we are believers in Jesus, but not just one faith. One faith, yes, but one word, one gospel. This faith isn't anchorless, this faith in Jesus. It's not simply something that we have some kind of uh, experience of. No, it, it finds its roots right here in the apostolic witness in Holy Scripture. That's what Jesus says. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's the there? Well, it's the 11 that are standing around Jesus. These who will be the apostles, the ones who actually write the gospels, write the the epistles, write the apocalypse at the end. Those are those in their orbit. The the apostles are the ones who, who give us the word of Jesus that causes us to believe in him. Which means then we have unity with those who prize Holy Scripture, who believe that this is in fact the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. Here in a few minutes, you'll hear Ronnie Rowe once again affirm his belief that the Scriptures are the inerrant Word of God. Why do we take that vow? It's because we only believe that unity can occur when there's a common faith rooted in the inspired, inherent word of God. Because only through the scriptures, the apostolic witness, do we come to actually know Jesus. And so we have unity with those who have this common faith rooted in a common scriptures, in a common word. One faith, one word. But this faith that we have in Jesus that's anchored in the Holy Scriptures ultimately is a faith that produces a union. You see, there's one union. Uh, When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ so that what's true of him is true of me. That's what Jesus has been telling us about, that he's in us and and we're in him. We've seen this language elsewhere. This language that you find here in chapter 17, verse 21, where Jesus says um, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, 
that they may also be in us. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. That's, that's language of union. That, that Jesus is in us and we are in him. And what's true of him is true of, uh, what's true of him is true of me. As we've already heard in the assurance of pardon this morning. He's righteous, so am I. He's holy, so am I. He's the redeemer, I've been redeemed. What's true of him is true of me. It's right at the heart of what, what we've talked about previously. That this union with Christ is what it means to have a real vital relationship with Jesus. As he talked about in John chapter 14 verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you're in me and I in you. But Jesus here isn't just talking about our own individual unions with Christ. No, what he's trying to tell us is that just in the same way that Sean is united to Jesus and Sarah is united to Jesus and Sam's united to Jesus and Claudia is united to Jesus, so we are united to one another because we have a common union with Jesus. The word communion is literally common union. There is one union with Jesus, which means then... Our unity with one another is rooted in the fact that, yes, we believed in Jesus, and yes, we believe his word, but we are united to Jesus Christ. We are part of his body. What's true of him is true of us. And if I'm righteous in Jesus Christ, so are you. And if I'm holy in Jesus Christ, so are you. If I'm glorious in Jesus Christ, so are you. Which means I can't treat you as though you don't belong to Jesus. No, you belong to Jesus. You've been united to him. And the unity that we have with one another, the unity for which Jesus prays, is rooted in the fact that we have a common faith, one faith rooted in one word that's realized in one union, a common union, a common relationship to Jesus. It's striking that when Jesus prays for us, he prays that we might know unity but he prays that we might know unity that actually is, is, is born out of a share in Jesus's glory. Jesus actually says that. Verse 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Their, our unity is rooted in the fact that we share in Jesus' glory. The Apostle Paul will talk about this in Colossians 1, where he talks about that the great hope of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, you in Christ, real vital relationship because of a common union that actually is the, the hope and the expectation of glory. Not just then, Jesus talks about it now. That there is, that we know his glory now. We share in his glory now. Remember back in Exodus when, when Moses prays, Lord, show me your glory. Remember? And, and God says, I'll show you my glory. You can't see it directly. You can't see me face to face. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by. You'll see my glory as it were from the backside. I'll declare my name. And so it was that in that immediate context, the prayer was answered. But ultimately, Moses' prayer, show me your glory, it's answered in Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory that Moses asked for? You see it in Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because John said 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? His glory. So that to see Jesus is to see his glory. That's why Jesus says, I have shown them your glory. Jesus is the one who who mediates God's glory to us, but it's also the case that, that when we're united to Jesus, we actually participate in his glory now. We see Jesus' glory, and for us with eyes of faith, we have seen his glory. But Jesus, God's word tells us that through in Jesus, we actually participate in his glory now. The New Testament talks about this. That because of our union with Christ, God sees us seated in the heavenly places now. Because of our union with Christ, our life is hidden with Christ in God now. Because of our union with Christ, those who are called are justified and have been glorified, Paul says in Romans 8. Glory now. Which means there's not a single person in this room who is trusted in Jesus Christ who hasn't already seen this glory, hasn't already participated in some sense in this glory, whether you know it or not. And that's not just true of you individually, it's also true of every person you interact with here. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory. Towards the end of that, Lewis says a remarkable thing. He tells us that as we go about and we encounter one another, we may see people on the outside and they seem you know, somewhat normal and shabby to us, but if we could actually see them as they actually are, as God sees them, we would have to fall down in the face of, the, of their glory. Every single person you encounter is glorious. That's what Jesus says. You participate in glory now. Which means then, when we, when we slander one another, when we fail to forgive one another, when we hold on to grudges and bitterness towards each other, when we run one another down, we're actually running down glorious beings. Those who share in God's own glory, displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, that's, that's why Jesus prays that our unity would be the result of Jesus' glory experienced now, but ultimately realized then. And Jesus, as he prays here for us, he prays in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. We've often sung Horatio Spafford's hymn, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. But Jesus is actually the one praying for that. He's praying for the day when your faith will become sight so that you will see the fullness of his glory. No longer by faith as we've trusted in Jesus, no, but by sight. And the wonder of God's grace is when you see Jesus' glory fully, you'll become like him. That's what John's going to say in his first letter in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What does Jesus say we're going to see him as? Glory. We're going to see his glory, which means we shall be like him, which means you and I will participate in his glory. 
the fullness of the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the foundation of the world. We'll participate in that. What an amazing prayer request. When Jesus prays that we might know unity, that's rooted in the fact that we have seen and will see Jesus' glory. But the final thing he asks for, for you and for me, is that we would have certainty. It's interesting that in verses 25 and 26, Jesus will actually use some form of the word no five times. Um, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known. Why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, Jesus wants us to have certainty. This knowing isn't a kind of intellectualized kind of knowing that Jesus speaks of here. It's a, it's a knowing that's a kind of persuasion uh, that has assurance attached to it. There's a measure of certainty here. And Jesus, as he prays uh, in verses 20 to 26, he, he prays that not just that we would have certainty, but, but that others would as well. He wants the world to know something. In fact, he, he prays that the world would know something as a result of our unity. He says in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. So, Jesus is praying here that the world would know something, that the world would have certainty. What, what's the certainty that, that God the Father had sent God the Son into the world to accomplish salvation? And how would the world have that certainty? As they see our unity. As they see us united with one another around one faith, one word, one union. Francis Schaeffer calls this the final apologetic when our rational arguments and our appeals to affections don't work with the world around us, the world will have certainty, Jesus prays. They will know that the Father sent the Son when they see believers united to one another, which means what? When we experience disunity? When we experience conflict that's unresolved? When we're unwilling to reconcile with one another? then the world doesn't have that certainty, do they? Well, there's nothing to that Christianity business. Those people can't get along. It's just a country club where everyone's fighting with one another, trying to gain power for themselves. That's what the world says. But Jesus is praying here for the exact opposite, that the world might know, that, that others might know that God had sent Jesus into the world as they see our unity. But he prays not just for others. He prays for ourselves. He prays that we might have certainty. And, and, and the wonder here is that Jesus asks, not that we would have certainty that, that God sent him into the world. Not that we would have certainty even that the message is true. When Jesus prays that you and I would have certainty, he prays that we would have certainty that God the Father has loved us with an everlasting love. Did you hear that? Again, verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me 
Verse 26, I've made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the world, that, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Those little phrases, just as, in the same way, they're stunning. They're full of gospel. But just as, in the same way, the Father loved the Son and loves the Son and will always love the Son into eternity past, into eternity future, in that same way, Lord, I want my people to have certainty that you love them the same way. It's easy for us to believe that Jesus loves us. We're taught from the time we're just little bitties. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But sometimes it's hard for us to believe that the Father loves us. We believe that the Father is actually angry with us, that he's wrathful towards us, that he wants to walk all over us with cleats, and that somehow Jesus, as the loving one, has to persuade his angry Father to change his mind about, about us. If you think that, Hear Jesus, because Jesus is telling you, no, no, don't say that of the Father. No, I want, I want my people to be certain that what has been true from eternity past and will be true into eternity future, that they might know it, not just in their heads, but in their bones, that Father, you love your people. The Father loves you. He loves you. And he's never stopped loving you. And he will always love you. And the very words we hear at the end of most every Sunday service, the Father's face shines upon you in the same way that you who've, been, who've become grandparents recently, you hold that grandchild for the first time and your face lights up. And the light of this little one has been brought into the world. That's how the Father lights up when he thinks of you. That's what the blessing says. Don't think hard thoughts of the Father. No, the Father loves you. The problem's not with his love. The problem's with you and me. Because we're prone to doubt the Father loves us. Some of us have had earthly fathers where it's hard to gain their love. And we're never quite certain where we stand with our dads. Not so with this Father. Not so with this Father. No, this Father loves us with a love that will not let us go. The great Scottish hymn writer Horatius Bonar puts it this way, O love of God, how strong and true, eternal, yet ever knew, uncomprehended and unthought, beyond all knowledge, or uncomprehended and unbought, beyond all knowledge and all thought. O love of God, how deep and great, far deeper than man's deepest hate, self-fed, self-kindled like the light, changeless, eternal, infinite. We read you best in him who came to bear for us the cross of shame, sent by the Father from on high, our life to live, our death, to die, that's how much the father loves. Some of you have known the deep pain of having lost a child. You know how, how, how grievous that is, how horrific that is. And yet, and yet the father willingly sent his son to die. And why did he do that? He did it for you. Because that's how much he loves you that he would send his son to die out of this changeless, infinite, eternal love that the Father has for you. Jesus prays that you would have certainty. Certainty concerning the Father's love for you. And out of this certainty that the Father loves and loves unchangeably, eternally, infinitely, he loves you. Jesus prays that we might know unity. 
a unity that is anchored in a sight of his glory. Now, as we await the fullness of his glory, then. Isn't it encouraging to know that Jesus prays those things for you? He's someone who's known you all of your life. Ever since you were little, even before you were a gleam in your parents' eye, he's known you, knew you in your mother's womb, followed you all of your days, and will follow you all the way to the end and beyond. And he prays over and again these very things. Friends, it's good news to have someone who prays like that for you. It's really good news. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do bless you for your great kindness to us. Though we are prone to wander and to doubt and to forget, and we hardly pray for ourselves sometimes, but Jesus, you're praying for us. Thank you. Thank you, O intercessor, one who has gained this office of priest by the power of an indestructible life. Thank you that you ever lived to make intercession for us, and you pray these kinds of things for us. Lord, grant us encouragement for our days, we ask, knowing that you pray this way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.